Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. So I, I just always really liked business as a force for creating this community of people that can do good. And then it obviously generates a whole bunch of revenue. And with my, even with Casa, like I only see him once a week for about an hour. But if we hire somebody, he's sitting next to me eight hours a day for five days out of the week. That's a, that's a lot of time. And I also, when, I, when I'm with my Casa, if he's doing something, like if he's playing basketball or he's doing something with his hands, he opens up a lot more than if I'm just sitting out facing him saying, well, how's your day going? Then he just kind of shuts down. But if somebody's sitting next to me, they've got a job, it might be inputting orders, it might be printing a t-shirt, very basic thing. But if they're doing that and I'm saying, so how's your day going? You know, they'll open up a lot more than they would otherwise. So I, I just think business creates so many opportunities to connect and impact with people. And young people that have been in the system for whatever reason, are, I think are the same stigma of they're not going to be good employees. So if we focus on like, that's who we're hiring and we're going to, we're going to build our company. We're all going to do trauma informed training. You know, we're going to, if someone shows up late, we're going to find out why they're late, not just say, you know, you're fired because you were late. So our, our business is going to be built around people that have overcome trauma and we're going to show that it can work. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi, this is Jake Everly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast, and today Jane Amelia speaks with Jordan Bartlett. He was adopted at a very young age and had a, a great life, but he recognized how fortunate he was. So he started a business that not only makes a profit, but provides resources and work opportunities for young people aging out of the foster care system. He's got a bunch of great ideas. Here's his story. Good morning. I'm here with Jordan Bartlett. Hi, Jordan. Hi, Jane. Thanks for, for having me today. Yeah, and thanks for responding to my reach out. I Sometimes you just never know. You know, uh, I was hopeful, <laughs> and then, yeah, he answered. But, <laughs> uh, so can you tell me a little bit about how you are raised? Yeah, uh, originally from Orlando, Florida. I uh, was born and raised there. I was adopted when I was about three or four years old. So one of my one of my first memories is actually sitting in the courtroom and going through kind of the legal process of name changes and things like that. Right. How, how did that feel? Like you were a little kid in a courtroom. Did you know there was a judge? Did you I mean, did you understand what was going on at all? Uh, I don't there, it didn't seem anything out of the out of the normal. Uh, I was with the people I had been with for as long as I could remember. Um, so to me, it was just kind of like a. We're going to go do this thing, and then we're going to go home and have some lunch. <laughs> right. And how, how did you happen to be adopted? What what about your bio family? Did you ever – were you removed from the home right away? Um, I was I was there for a little while, and I, I really don't know too many of the details. Um, I My biological mom is still very much – was in my life growing up, and I still know her. Uh, 
she was young and the person she was with was young and neither were quite ready. So they, they both thought the best thing for me would be to move to a, a place where I could be cared for a little bit better. Um, so I think they both made that decision knowing where they were in their life. Right. And you ended up being in a blended family, right? There were several adopted kids and were there also bio kids or what? There's actually, so my mom had three bio kids from a previous marriage and my dad had three and then they got together and then I came along after that. So, so they adopted you as like a seventh kid. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. So they, they were at the point in their life and I think the, the closest one to me was about 14 years difference. So they were, they, wow. were they, they were at a point where they were ready to be empty nesters. And then I came along. And then you came along. Right. And then, um, so, okay. Time passes. You're at school, right? You're walking across campus. What happens? Yeah. So I went to a local college in Orlando and it was my freshman year. I think we had just gotten out of baseball practice and I was walking back to my dorms and a young lady, she's about my age. I was about 18 or 19 at the time. She had a stroller and she strolls up to me and she says, I'm your sister. Um, We have the same father. And I, I knew I'd been adopted, but had never even thought about you know, what, what that meant of somebody else out there that may have gone through something similar or, you know, siblings that I hadn't thought about. And I wish I had some intelligent response for her. For her. I was kind of just like, oh, okay. And that was about the extent of the conversation. I really, literally didn't know how to respond. Yeah. So but how did she know who you were? She had, so she, she had a very different life. She had been in and out of the foster care system. She'd overcome addiction um, and I think in some of her recovery steps, she was starting to look for other connections to make and was starting to, I think she was the one that kind of started to connect all the siblings together. Really? Okay. So there were other ones as well? Yeah, there are, I don't know how many, uh, um, but we are all, so a bunch of us are connected on Facebook. So um, it was that time, I think it was 2006. So Facebook was kind of just becoming a thing. Right. right. Uh, but since in the last 15 years or so, I've been able to connect and kind of form somewhat relationships. I mean, as much as social media can. Um, I've moved across the country, so they're still in on the East Coast. So we haven't had a chance to actually meet in person. Right. And, and, and how about her? Did you end up at that time developing a relationship with her or was it just like, oh, okay, uh, thanks for the news and all right, bye. That was pretty much the extent of it at that point. Um, it, there was no, I, I didn't know really what to do. And I was 19 years old. I was focused on where the next party was and what yeah. class, <laughs> classes I had. Right. So I wasn't really, I wasn't really in a position to kind of think through the bigger picture of that. Um, I think it when I started to work, uh, I originally got into the insurance industry thinking I'd have this huge paycheck and then you know make all this money and one day start a foundation. And uh, did, did not like sitting in a cubicle and working for a paycheck and wanted to do something different. And that's when I was like, oh, you know, Stephanie had this different life than I had. You know, I wonder if that outcome is more similar or is, if my outcome is more similar and started to research the system and what the system does and what it doesn't do and the outcomes and some of the issues young people have when they leave the system. And that's kind of when I decided, well, I'm, I was so loved and supported as a child and it could have been very different. I'm sure there's a lot of other people that are in that situation and I've, 
I've been blessed with what I've been blessed with. So why not try and use that to help some other people? Right. So, but this was all your, your thought process as a, as a young man, like you're in your, your early twenties at this point. And you're like, I want to do something different. I want to make a difference. Yeah. I, I, probably been in the insurance industry for about eight years and tried to do some executive recruiting as well. I thought that would be hugely different. It wasn't. So I, it was, I know it was February 14th because my then girlfriend, now wife, always reminds me that it was Valentine's Day um, of 2014. I just told my boss, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit. I don't know what I'm going to do. I didn't have any jobs lined up, but I want to work with young people um, that have been impacted by the system um, and figure out whatever my place is in that world. So it's those two things. Were there things in the middle? You met your sister when you're a, a basically teenager, and then you're a young man and you decide, I want to do something different and I want to make an impact. Was there anything in between or is it just always brewing inside you? Like, wow, I had a really lucky life and she didn't, it turns out, right? You found out she yeah. didn't. Mm -hmm. She yeah. had a really, really tough time. Yeah. Yeah. She, she had been in and out of foster care. Um, and I believe it is in Florida and Georgia. Um, and like I said, had addiction, um, issues that she's, she has overcome and actually she works, she now works at the facility where she got clean, um, helping other people get clean, which is awesome. Um, yeah, but yeah. incarceration, just really, really difficult things that never even like got on my radar. Right. Right. Okay. So then you you, you quit your job and you're like, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, and and for, for other things that happen, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I never thought too much about this until I met my wife. Um, she super big hearted person. We actually got to know each other volunteering at the Ronald McDonald house. Oh. Um, and she, we used to go over there and cook dinners. We were, oh, we, so we worked in the same office and she would invite people over to the Ronald McDonald house to cook dinners. And that's where her and I kind of got to know each other and she's just an amazing person and she became a casa as well while oh, I was cool. starting. Right. Yeah. yeah. She's a casa. Right. Yeah. And, and so are you. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. But she, she kind of led that. I watched what she was doing with her casa and making an impact. I was thinking about Stephanie and then obviously not being a big fan of, of the corporate America job. I think all of those things kind of came together and led to that decision. Right. And you had a partner, right? Your friend, Scott, and you're like, we're going to start something up. So what happened? So we, did, we, we didn't know each other at all uh, when I quit. So I quit in February of 2014. And I had a really good mentor named Jeff Black at the company I was working with. And Jeff just introduced me to everybody in the, in the foster care field in Orange County. And I started talking to Royal Family Kids, who does summer camps for kids that are in the system between, I think, 6 and 12 years old. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they had just gotten a new new executive director, so there was some openings. And I said, you know, I'd love to. I don't know what my background would be. I'm probably in development, but if there's an opportunity, I would love to do that. And the guy said, you know, there's there's somebody else that we've been working with for you know two or three years to try and figure out how to make money in a social enterprise type way. Um, you should connect with him and meet him. He's, he's running a staffing agency. So my initial thought was, Oh, staffing agency. That sounds terrible. <laughs> uh, and I, I actually didn't, didn't call him at first. I was like, I don't want to be involved with staffing at all. And then financial constraints being what they are in Southern California. 
I was like, I need to, I need to just talk to anybody. So I called him and we met over at the Spectrum in Irvine for coffee and just sat down and just said, you know, we both come from the for-profit world. We both have this passion. His wife had been a CASA for a young lady that had aged out. So he saw all the issues that she had. And at that, at that coffee, we just said, let's start something that, you know, generates revenue, creates jobs. We don't, we didn't care what it was as long as it, you know, made money, it was easy to get into and had the ability to scale across the country. And we had some failed attempts, but yeah. Yeah. Like what, like, like what were the first things you tried to do? (laughs) So the first thing we tried to do was, um, the cell phone cases that, Somebody could go online, upload it, and then we would put it through a digital printer and send them a phone case that has like their photograph on it. And there are all kinds of copyright issues, and people would upload some pretty shocking photos. <laughs> it was, it wasn't a uh, there wasn't a ton of margin in it, and you just needed to do a lot of them. Um, so that didn't work. And then we tried to sell coffee online, which shipping is super expensive, and there's people that do that really well. And then we went to, I went to a uh, fundraising event for Human Options, which is a local uh, organization that supports survivors of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And um, I met somebody there who worked for a IP law firm in Orange County. And I said, you know, I'm sure you guys print t-shirts. You know, if, if we could print that t-shirt for you, would you give us an opportunity to print it and we could start the business doing t-shirts? And she said, no. Uh, but we need the <laughs> no, no, yeah. Okay, no. <laughs> yeah, she said we do. We need these little tin cars that have jelly bellies in them, and they have to have our logo in them. So I, I went home. I told Scott, I was like, "This is what they want. We got to find somebody to produce it." So we found a supplier overseas that would print them for us, ship them over, and then we filled them with jelly bellies. And get, I think it was like two hundred of them. Gave them to them, and that was our first order in November of 2014. And Scott called me while all that was happening, and he said, "What are, you know? What are we doing?" I was like, "What do you mean? I'm trying to sell something?" He said, "I know, but in the, like the bigger sense, what are we doing?" I guess, and I said, "I guess we're trying to do good." And he was like, "Exactly, you know, doing good works. That should be the company name." So that's it's how a, it's a good name. It's a good name. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so we stuck with it. That was our first sale, and then that turned into, "Can you guys do T-shirts and business cards and water bottles?" So we've kind of turned into this full-fledged branded merchandise organization over the last several years. Right. But you also have a really interesting structure, the model of how it works. Can you explain that to me? Yeah. So we kind of, we operate off of a a 10, 20, 30 model. So 10% of all of our corporate profits go back to supporting young people that have aged out of the system. Uh, That could be internships, that could be books for school, it could be housing, it's lift rides to work, job training, things like that. Then 20% of our time as employees is available for mentoring. So if we have an internship, all of our employees get to mentor some of the interns. I'm a court-appointed special advocate, so there's days when my court date starts at 8 a.m. and I might not get out until 3 p.m. Right, right. Uh, so we have it built into our organization where that's that full day is available for me to go and, and mentor that CASA. And then 30% of our hires will, at a minimum, will always come from young people that have been experienced foster care, um, although we're probably closer to 50 or 60% right now. That's amazing. I wonder if there's anything like this out there in the country. Are, are you the only one? We haven't, we haven't seen any that aren't 
more more funded by donations. We don't have any any donations. Um, we're complete revenue through sale of business. Uh, we've been on the ink list for the fastest growing companies in the in the country a few times. So we're a pure for profit organization, which is kind of a bad word in the social space. Um, but we see revenue and margin as a way to increase the mission and continue to build out housing programs, work programs, and different things across the country. Right. So your wife is a CASA, and then you decided to become a CASA. How did that come about? Like, what was that process? She just loved it. So we were trying to start the business. So there were days when you're literally like, man, what do I can, I can only learn how to build a website and call, make as many cold calls as, in one day as I can. So I wanted to kind of do more at that time. And we were going to Orangewood once a week to do resume training and things like that. But I, I saw the connection she had with this young lady who had a really, really difficult background. And she ended up being a CASA with her. She's still in her life. This was, I mean, we're eight, nine years on and loved what she was doing. And I knew there was a long waiting list for young men that needed a CASA and wanted a younger man to be their CASA. So I signed up and I think I got appointed in August of 2015. So about a year after we started the business and was doing that in Southern California. And I actually still have my case in Southern California for the next year and a half because he's a non-minor dependent. So I still fly back and see him. Mm-hmm. Um, but love, love doing that. And hope if when that case kind of reaches its conclusion, I'm hoping to do that here in Central Texas as well. Right. So, you know, there are so few men that do it and I don't, and I, they're always trying to get guys, but you just were like, this is right for me. Is it, and it's because you saw how much your wife liked it or because you think that you could have just done it anyway, no matter what. She, she definitely introduced me to it. I, I love it though. It is, it's hard. And it's kind of a thankless, thankless role if you're going into it, hoping like this person's going to love me and think I'm the best thing ever. They might think that, but you won't hear that and you won't see that. Right, um, right, right. So, so it, it's a, it's a difficult. It is a difficult role, but there's no other volunteer role like it. I, I think it's just the ability to make an impact on someone, and it's really just showing up. It's not, it's not hard. You just have to show up. You have to be on time. You have to be there. You can't say, well, something came up and I need to do something else. But if you just show up and spend time and give space to decompress and relax and get out of the group home environment or get out of the foster home environment for an hour every week, it can make such a big impact just through the the consistency and someone that kind of sticks through all the different social workers because they're going to cycle through social workers. They're going to cycle through lawyers. They're going to cycle through residents. Everything gets cycled except for the that CASA role, which is why I like it. That's right. That That's the thing I uh, I really try to explain to people, that often the CASA is the only person in the child's life that remains, that mm-hmm. is that ideally is always there. I mean, sometimes yeah. sometimes that doesn't work, you know, for, uh, you know, things happen. But in, in general, the CASA is the only one who's not paid, number one. Yeah. And who is the hub of information for the kid mm-hmm. and who who also is truly advocates for the kid as opposed to trying to keep their job or, you know, uh, you know, uh, trying to change policy or whatever. They're just there for the kid yeah. to see what the kid wants to also to find out what the kid can get. Even, you know, that, that was like a lot of the work that gets done for for 
for many costas, right? Just yeah. figuring out what's out there services wise for their yeah. kid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the, the fact that I wasn't getting paid was always a big thing as well. I, I know they say you're not paid to be yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no, I think, I think that represented I'm there because of him, but also I'm not, you know, being paid by a, a institution that is there, you know, with whatever their goals are. So whether it's the court, you know, social services, the school, all those people are being paid by those institutions. I, I think there's a lot of good people in all of those, but there's still something in the in the head of that young person that if there's a paycheck, there's a reason outside of me. Right. So I think I think the fact that costs show up over and over and are consistent and aren't getting a paycheck, I think that that speaks a lot to the relationship with the young person. Yeah, I think that's really true. And uh, so have have you had one case so far or have you had a few? Had two two cases. My first one was a 16 year old, so I had him until he turned 18, and he was ready to get out of the system. And then my second one started in 2017 uh, with a 14 year old, and I still still have him. He's going to turn 20 here this year. Right. So has he been able to to stay in the system and get support? Is he in school and and uh, have a part time job or something? He's a, so he's still a non-minor dependent. So he's still getting housing support and things like that. He still has a social worker. Uh, he's a worker. So he, he's gotten some really good jobs, been able to stay with those organizations. Um, so he's not going to school right now, but he's gotten some good job experience. Still dealing with life. And I mean, I, I had a lot of, a lot of things going on when I was 19. So, you know, just because he's made it to 19 and has a casa doesn't mean, you know, he's out of the woods. So right, still, go, right. still, still goes through some of the things all 19 year olds do. Um, he's a little bit more under the microscope than I was because, you know, he's got lawyers looking at him and social workers looking at him and housing programs looking at him. So I think that's tough for, for anyone to have that many eyeballs on you, but he's, he's doing really well. And how do you feel about yourself and the work that you're doing? Do you feel you've made a good impact on him? Yeah, I d- definitely do. There's still feelings of like one step forward, two steps back. And then you're always waiting for that one one phone call that's like eight steps back. Um, I know, but, I know, I know. It's like that scary call that might come in the middle of the night, you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, probably, it's probably not that different than parenting. I still have a four-year-old and an eight-month-old, so... I haven't quite gotten to those stages where they're going out on their on their own, but when when I met him at fourteen, he's a bigger kid, um, and I'm six eight. So I think me being a big person also kind of and being I'm pretty calm and passive. So I think that helps him. He was a big, angry fourteen year old, um, and I think people were pretty scared of what he could do, and he would he would unload on people um, verbally and sometimes physically. There have been times now when I see him get confronted or have a situation where I know he would have exploded. And I see him step back, take the time to kind of decompress and work through whatever that situation is. And I think just the ability to be able to control yourself on those stressful confrontations, I think is going to really help him in life. So I see him do those things. And I know there's an impact, but like I said, he's 19 years old. So Right. So he's learning that in therapy, but also learning it because of you as a role model. Yeah. I think the fact that he's got somebody to call when he does get stressed. I think before it was just on him and his way to to deal with it was kind of just really explode through the situation. Um, but now he knows he can take a step back. He's got somebody to call. 
So I think all of that just kind of consistency over the years, knowing that I'm going to pick up the phone and if I don't, I'll call back within the next hour or so. I think that gives them a little bit of buffer room when those stressful situations come up. So why do you think more people don't do what you're doing, Jordan? It is, it is it's hard. Um, so, I mean, I've got a business, two little ones, a wife. It's not a ton of time. Um, and I, like I said, I, I could have to be out for six hours of the day at court. So I, I do think there's that part of it. Um, I think that's the misconception of foster care. I think people think they're, they're in there for a reason versus they're in there because of what's happened to them. So um, true. So yeah. true that I, I find that all the time that, yeah. that, and this is something I talk about with, uh, with a lot of my friends that are, that are either working with youth or, you know, that the idea about changing the narrative of why mm-hmm. these kids are in care, these kids are in care because their families have failed them. And then very often the system fails them. It's yeah. not because they've done something wrong. Very, very rarely are they yeah. in, in foster care because they've done something wrong. And even if they have, it's because likely they've been failed uh, yeah. before. So they're, they're acting out, right? Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately the system may have even failed their families as well. So it's just this uh, generational. Totally. Yeah. It's like one after another. It's just yeah. like, a, like a domino. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And it's hard to climb out. So I think, I think there's some of that too, of just the misconceptions of who these kids are, uh, which is unfortunate. And then I don't know how many people know about Casa. I think they've done a, a good job recently. I see them at the airport. Sometimes I saw, I just went to Atlanta and got off in the Metro or the train had a big Casa national sticker on it. I was like, Oh, that's cool. I saw that uh, too in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah it's cool. I, yeah. I just, I just saw it like last month. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think more people are starting to know what it is, but it is a big commitment. I mean, 30, 30 hours of training and, and once a week is, is a lot, a big commitment. So I just think it's a combination of being a, a big role and then just the misconceptions. Right. But I'm asking about something larger, like what, what it is about you that as a young man, you, you know, you're adopted, you were from a very supportive and loving family, right? Mm-hmm. Did you, did you, did you learn then about civic duty or were you just like a regular kid? And then, because you're doing something that is so important and so impactful and is not easy. And I, I'm I'm not talking about being a casa now. I'm, I'm I'm talking about your business too. You know, on top of being a casa, I'm trying to figure out what it is about you that has allowed you to do that, or has has almost compelled you to do it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, I've I've always been very risk tolerant, which my wife will tell you through and through. Uh, so quitting a job to go figure something out that I want to do didn't seem like a big deal at all. Um, it, I say that lightly because it was a big deal to, to it, cause it impacted her a lot as well. So I would have done things differently, but I mean, sitting there doing something I didn't like, I, I just, why I won't do it. Like, I don't, I don't know what it is or where I learned that because my parents are pretty traditional and you know, you never quit a job unless you've got something lined up. My mom was horrified when I told her what I did. And I think part of, I, I love reading about, reading biographies. So when I read stories of other people that have done it and it turned out okay, luckily the people that have failed don't write biographies, so I haven't read them. Um, <laughs> they, they tend to be people that have succeeded. So I, I used to love reading stories about, you know, some of the older ones like Rockefeller and JP Morgan, like back in the day. And then even the, even the people that are doing, you know, big things in business now. And I, I always loved 
how business kind of creates a community of employees. And I always thought that was a powerful tool that wasn't really used very well. You know, I think, I think big, big business gets a bad rap, but I think it's the individuals in that big business that should get the bad rap. I think business itself is awesome because it's really just a group of people working together to come up with solutions to problems that people are having. And when it's done well, it's, it's, you know, we're, we're at a time where we can, go online and order something, it'll show up within the hour. I mean, that's pretty innovative solution building, regardless of what you think about the company that may do that. So I, I just always really liked business as a force for creating this community of people that can do good. And then it obviously generates a whole bunch of revenue. And with my, even with Casa, like I only see him once a week for about an hour. But if we hire somebody, he's sitting next to me eight hours a day for five days out of the week. That's a, that's a lot of time. And I also, when, I, when I'm with my Casa, if he's doing something, like if he's playing basketball or he's doing something with his hands, he opens up a lot more than if I'm just sitting at him, facing him, saying, well, how's your day going? And then he kind of shuts down. But if somebody's sitting next to me, they've got a job, it might be inputting orders, it might be printing a t-shirt, very basic thing. But if they're doing that and I'm saying, so how's your day going? You know, they'll open up a lot more than they would otherwise. So I, I just think business creates so many opportunities to connect and impact with people and young people that have been in the system for whatever reason are, I think are the same stigma of they're not going to be good employees. So if we focus on like, that's who we're hiring and we're going to, we're going to build our company. We're all going to do trauma informed training. You know, we're going to, if someone shows up late, we're going to find out why they're late, not just say, you know, you're fired because you were late. So our, our business is going to be built around people that have overcome trauma and we're going to show that it can work. So there was always something about that of being able to use business for a good cause and do it ourselves, but also show other people, you know, you can, you can grow the business, you can do good, you can hire who you want to hire. So I always just love that concept. I also didn't know how to, I didn't know how to write a grant. I didn't know how to ask for a donation. Those are, those both seem like hard things. And part of it was just, could we, can we do it? So there's some curiosity, like, can, can I build something? I think I never wanted to be an entrepreneur, but when I started to think about it, it was like, oh, that would be kind of cool. If we could, if we could do something different than anybody else has done and help a bunch of people, then I'll be, I'd be pretty stoked on that. Yeah. So how do you see it growing now? Like if you, in, in your dream of dreams, what could it be? Cause I'm sure you're dreaming on scaling, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I just moved to central Texas. So I'm out here a little bit North of Austin um, we've got, we've just acquired a print shop in Florida as well. So we've got three locations. So in Texas, the idea is to, we're in contract on a property here. That's about an acre, a lot more space in Texas, which is nice. And the goal is to have a office space, a little print shop, and then residential facilities on that acre. So the, the goal really is to create little communities where there's still revenue being produced through printing through office space, we can have customer service and marketing and all the you know business functions there, but it also provides housing opportunities and then they're all together. So there's community building opportunities. We can bring the community in. Lots of barbecue in Texas. So we can bring a barbecue joint in or a food truck in, connect them with the youth, do some education about what foster care is um, and have this little kind of community where people are learning what foster care is people that didn't necessarily have secure housing can now have secure housing. I think if they have that secure housing and then they can be, you know, move on to another role where they can go rent an apartment. I think whatever company they go to, they're going to build that culture. So it kind of grows exponentially. 
So building these little hubs across the country where there's business happening, there's housing happening, and then you know getting those communities together, I think is how it grows. And people need t-shirts everywhere. They need them in England, they need them in Australia. So if we can do this across the world, I think that would be the ultimate goal. Really? So like the idea is that you'd have these little communities of essentially production, but also uh, residences where you're creating kind of a like secure family for these kids to continue to grow and continue to continue to develop so that they can be uh, healthy and happy on their own eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And start to find, you know, the best practices for therapy, you know, emotional connection, how to build relationships and start to build all those best practices into those communities Real estate is a great investment. So if we're investing in real estate through the business and that real estate just happens to be used for housing opportunities for employees, there's all kinds of data that says if an employee is financially or housing insecure, they're not going to come to work and perform. That's right. So if they have if they are secure in their housing, we're providing you know, financial literacy, It's a it becomes a competitive advantage to the business as well. So I think we've we've started like, little internships where someone will come in for 20 hours a week and there's literally just show up and we'll figure something out for you to do. And it could be print t-shirts. It could be, you know, write up a purchase order. And they're, they're full-time people, full-time people now that are managing hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue that they've just kind of picked up through internships. And they were in guardian scholar programs. They were in housing programs, probably had no idea they'd be in the promotional product space. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought I'd be in the promotional product space, but now they're talking to like Pixar and Sephora and these customers that we've got that are, you know, really cool brands that they're a part of. So, so how do you choose the kids? How do they come to you? How does how does that work? So our first internship, you know, we, we put all this time and effort at the end of 2019, we we're going to build this awesome internship where they would learn about housing and financial literacy and mental health. And we were going to start in the spring of 2020. We got like 20 resumes for the first one and we had five openings and then, and then March 13th hit. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, and we closed the doors literally that Saturday. So that was Friday, the 14th of the Saturday, Scott and I called her like, what are we going to cut people? Like who, who are we going to have to cut to keep the doors open? And then on Monday, an opportunity came through with one of our customers that was going to help us, you know, sustain financially through all of it. And we were like, we got 20 resumes and those people are in much worse position now than they were on Thursday of last week. So let's just hire all of them. So we ended up with a with an internship. Two of them had to drop out, but we had 18 interns right at the beginning of the pandemic when everything shut down. And it was just whoever Guardian Scholars passed to us, we just took everybody. Um, and we can't do that forever. Um, I think it's going to be a start to be a position where we do want them to succeed. So they, I think there's got to be some connection to whatever the job is. If they want to be marketing interns, you know, there's some connection to marketing. But it's always going to come from either Guardian Scholar programs or tr- transitional housing programs that we're connected to. So now you're like, as you said, you're doing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of business. And that all came from a couple hundred jelly bellies. Yeah. Yeah. It came from a $2,000 order. And then last year we did about 6 million in revenue. And I think this year we're going to hit 10. Um, 6 million. Yeah. Yeah. We had, and that, and that was with the first half of the year being pretty, uh, 
confusing because we had the Delta variant. We weren't sure if COVID was gone. Companies didn't know if they were going remote or what they were going to do. And schools made up a huge part of our business. So schools just went away on March 13th because they didn't, right. have, they didn't right. have a budget. They just didn't know what they were going to do. And then our business was really like print 10,000 t-shirts and ship it to an office so that they can give them out to employees. But the employees were now dispersed. So we we pivoted in September of 2020 and started bringing all the product into our warehouse and we kitted it up and started drop shipping the locations all over the country. And people saw that. We kind of marketed that like you've got these remote employees in one of the most isolating times in our history. This is a way to engage them and show like, you know, you're still part of this organization. We still care. And it almost turned into like little kindness kits that were getting sent out and they were branded by the company. We did cool custom boxes. The boxes would tell a story and it became a really, really cool selling point for the, a lot of those brands that were trying to find a way to connect with employees. So, I mean, we went from the majority of our business being giveaways to people outside of like, so our customer would then give all this stuff away to probably 95% of our business now is being given to employees. This is awesome. It's, so it's, yeah. it's, it's awesome. It's been, a, it, it's been crazy today. Actually, it was funny. We do some work for the Obama Foundation, and they ship out to the most random places. And I took a picture, I took a screenshot for Scott, and it's like a little red dot right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, some island I've never heard of. And I sent to Scott, I was like, "Did you ever think we would send something to this location, <laughs> like in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, getting a branded T-shirt like seven years ago?" So it's 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 interesting. I mean, that's why I like the business because. Businesses everywhere need to promote themselves, regardless of where they are. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you could drop a uh, little print facility with residential in any, you know, major hub in the in the country and really in the world, and there's definitely a million dollars worth of business in that little hub that could sustain that sustain that community ongoing. So, so are your customers coming to you because they know what you're doing, or uh, I mean, is that a big draw? You think? Yeah, I think the mission does a really good job of opening the door and then making it sticky on the back end. Everything in between that has to be a re has to be a really good experience for the customer. They better get all of the right things, right sizes, right colors. So we our, our team does a really good job of of the customer experience. Um, so we have people that may not even know what our mission is, but our customer experience team has done such a good job of of that experience that they come back over and over. And then there's other people that are like, you know, you, this is what you charged me. I love your mission. If you charge me more, it's okay. I can sneak it in because of what you guys are doing. Ah, um, nice. So yeah, yeah. These are these are big big brands that I know have tight budgets and are are really concerned about that. Uh, so when they say things like that, it's it is cool to to know that people care about the mission that much. So we do videos that'll say like, thank you. So and so, here's the impact, and it'll show you know our warehouse and who's working in our warehouse. So I, the mission does a really, really good job of building the relationship. We hear from people that are like, "Hey, we're a, we're a B Corp. Love what you guys are doing. Can you do ten T-shirts for us?" And that kind of starts a relationship. Mm -hmm. So, how do you feel? I, I I've already asked this, but I want to ask one more time. How do you feel about what you're doing? I I love it. I mean, I. There's, if, if you had told me 10 years ago that I would have generated $6 million of anything, I would have told you you were crazy. Um, I never saw myself as an entrepreneur. 
even when Scott and I had this idea, I would like, I would listen to speeches by entrepreneurs and they would all be like, when I was six, I started my first business selling greeting cards. I'm like, when I was six, I was like playing in the mud. Like maybe this isn't for me. Um, so I think I always thought of an entrepreneur as like, I don't even like that word that much because I don't really know what it means, but like Steve Jobs or Bezos or these super high intelligent people that, you know, are just from a different planet. But, you know, as I've gotten to learn more about business, I, I just, I love what business can do. Um, so I just got the opportunity last week to go judge a pitch contest for the University of Texas. And it was all about businesses that are doing good. So I think if doing good works can kind of be a template of you can have a fast growing business that's super profitable and does a lot of good and helps a lot of people and people love to work there and customers like to be a part of the mission. Uh, I think it, I think it takes social enterprise out of being thought of as kind of more of a nonprofit thing um, and starts to be a real competitive advantage for business. Um, so I think if, if all, to, all that to say, if it came out of this of, you know, I helped start something that showed you can do business a different way um, and maybe start to change the, the narrative around, you know, what businesses can do. Uh, I think we'd feel really good about that. Cause I do think it's such a powerful opportunity, especially with social media where you can tell stories and, you know, let people know about what you're doing in such a big way with the relatively, you know, small overhead. Yeah. It's really, it's really impressive. You know that Jordan, it's, it's just, it's just impressive. So. Appreciate that. <laughs> I want to ask you one other thing that I ask all my guests and I, if you can dig deep for this. So what is the one thing that no one would know about you unless you told them? No one would know about me. Um, yeah. So it's be funny when people listen to this. Um, so I graduated college in 2006. Uh, like I said, two amazing parents that raised me. Um, my, my adopted dad had cancer for as long as I can remember. I think I was like eight or nine when he got it. And he had told his doctor, like, you know, I just want to see Jordan graduate high school. Um, and he was able to, you know, stay, <clears throat> stay with us and watch me graduate college. And then that summer, he and I got to do a trip to England. He, they're both born, born and raised in England. I was the only American in the family. So we got to go to England. We saw where he was stationed, things like that. Um, and then when we got back, he got pretty sick and ended up passing away that summer. Um, and after that, I, I got into, you know, a really dark place with mental health and really struggled with mental health and depression. Um, you know, tried to drink it away. Um, so I was, I, you know, people see me now and I think like kind of your, your response of like, you're doing all this awesome stuff and you had a really supportive family um, but before I met Rachel, my wife, there were six or seven years where I struggled really badly with, with depression and mental health. Um, and I think f kind of finding my way through that, um, and getting some support through that. And, you know, re reading was a big part of that reading what depression is, what mental health is, you know, how the brain works, um, kind of understanding that it's not anything wrong with me. There was just something missing or something not working quite right. All of that research I did to kind of understand what was happening to me, I think was a big part. And maybe this even goes back to the question you asked of like, what drove you to do this? You know, I, I kind of realized a lot about myself and became really comfortable in who I was. 
Uh, and from there, I was like, well, I can try just about anything. If it doesn't work, I'll try it again. You know, I've, I've been able to get, get myself out of this really dark place. People around me have been, helped me get out of this dark place. So I can, you know, I can take bigger risks. I can do things I didn't think I could do because I'm not as scared about what the pushback is. And it's still something I deal with it every day. If, if I get an email where somebody is a little bit snappy in my head, I've got this doomsday, like they're mad at me. They're going to be a huge customer. The customer is going to go away from doing good works, doing good works is going to fail. All these people are going to be on the streets. I'm not going to have a business. I don't have anything else to do. I'm going to be on the streets. Rachel's going to leave. She's going to take the kids. I'm going to be homeless. I have to move back to Florida. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it all starts from like a little email. I have to like catch it. And, and I think it's just the way I've always been nervous that, you know, everything's just going to go away. And I think that's just part of the mental health things that, you know, are, are part of who I am. If I have to get up on stage and give a speech, everything in my head is saying, this is going to fail. And because of that, doing good works is going to go away. And it same cycle. Wow. Um, so oh. I, I still, you know, deal with that. And then some of the, some of the ways that I handled the depression, I still think about that every day as well. So I think, you know, I don't know if a whole bunch of people know that I've had some of those mental health issues um, and still, still think about them, um, but have, have found some pretty good mechanisms to cope with it. Yeah. You know, it seems you really have, but also, it also seems that the work that you're doing is helping you cope with it. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much purpose in it. And I think once you find that purpose, whether it's, I mean, purpose can be something within you individually getting out and bettering yourself, learning, working out things like that, or, you know, bettering those around you. So the fact that I get to wake up every day and do what I do, I mean, it, I love it. So it's easy, easy to be happy with everything that has been built. It's, this is really great, Jordan. Really, thank you so much for doing this interview. I think it's really important for people to hear. Yeah, I appreciate, appreciate you having me. Uh, I think you know, I think what you're doing, telling the different stories of foster care, because it's not survivor stories and success stories are awesome, but there's a lot of different aspects of it. So I really appreciate what, what you're doing to bring you know education to different areas as well. Yay on us, huh? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> okay thanks. <laughs> thank you, Jordan, for doing the work that you do doing good works. It's a great tag, by the way. Be kind, love more, do good. And I really think what you're doing, creating a business that not only makes a profit, but supports the community and creates its own self-sustaining community is something that can be used across the country, if not around the world. It's a great idea and a really simple structure. It's like a small village, so it doesn't just have to be for foster youth. And I think we all have a little of that doom and gloom inside of us, but it's really great to have support to help you see the other side. Thanks again. If you'd like to see more about Jordan or doing good works, you can find him on Twitter at JB underscore DGW or Instagram at JB underscore DGW or check out the website DGWbranded.com. Our next guest is Sana Latrice Cotton, a former foster youth who was trafficked when she was four years old by her mother and grandmother. She's now a motivational speaker and a foster youth advocate, and the founder of Unashamed, a nonprofit organization which fosters emotional health and disadvantaged families that have experienced incarceration, foster care, and teen pregnancy. So join us next week for Sana Latrice Cotton. Thank you, and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, 
Contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.